We've got more than $4 trillion worth of companies to cover, so let's get started. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ricky Mulvey, joined today by Nick Seipel, live from what appears to be an empty room. Nick, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you, Ricky. As you alluded to, I'm getting ready to move next week, so my whole life is in boxes. There's disarray everywhere, but we'll try to remain clear-headed here for this episode. Yeah, it's it's a stressful time. Someone who's not having, I would say, a stressful morning, though, is Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. Because if it's hard to accelerate a cruise ship, don't tell this tech company they beat expectations. Growing revenue at a 13% clip to $50 billion just in this quarter. Before we dive into the details, what's your big take on it? Uh, just really how remarkable the growth story is for Microsoft. You think about this is a company that's going to turn 50 years old in two years, still delivering the type of growth that it's putting out there into the market. You just laid out there the 13% revenue growth, net income up 27% in the quarter, to over $20 billion in free cash flow, buying back a net $4.2 billion in stock, expenses growing at the slowest rate in seven years. A company that's getting ready to turn 50 years old, you'd think it would be maturing, you think it might be slowing down a little bit. Not the case for Microsoft, and it doesn't look like that's going to be the case really anytime soon. Yeah. The key word I would say of this quarter was co-pilot. We heard about co-pilot applications a little bit more than Activision Blizzard or OpenAI, which is related to co-pilot. But anyway, basically, they're focusing on these, these applications where they're going to make coding more efficient, they're going to transform productivity. So, if you've ever sent an email and then seen the rest of the sentence written for you, that's the co-pilot at work. And also looking to redefine search with Bing, offering more contextual value when you make a search on that platform, if you make a search on that platform. Why is this such a big uh, focus for Microsoft at this moment? And do you think it's this push is going to be meaningful for its investors? Yeah, so I do think the push is going to be meaningful for investors. Why is Microsoft excited about it? Really, Microsoft is a technology company, and AI is positioned as the next revolution in technology. For that reason alone, it's something that Microsoft should be excited about and getting behind. But more importantly, if you think about Microsoft's core franchise going all the way back to its founding, it's really been built on technology that enhances worker productivity. You think about things like Word, Excel, how they've really enhanced what workers are able to get done. Um, Microsoft has been a Leader in that space forever. And copilots really are the next wave of that type of productivity enhancing software. Just to throw out a couple of stats for you GitHub Copilot, which helps software developers write code. Microsoft threw out that that has increased developer productivity by 55%. Technology investments like this have led the number of developers on GitHub to increase by 4x since Microsoft acquired the company five years ago. If you remember Steve Ballmer's famous quote from, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago at this point developers, 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 really the key uh, to, to winning for a business, uh, for a business like this. On top of that, the productivity gains that Microsoft can deliver to its customers arguably are going to give the company some more pricing power, which is great for any business out there. Uh, starting November 1st, they're going to offer 365 Copilot AI as an add-on for its existing productivity software subscriptions, which is going to be, become available to large companies. That's going to be charging $30 per month per seat, which um, that can add up to a really big number if you think about the, the, the full scope of Microsoft's customer base. So, really, a new, new technology offering, which is going to win a really key constituency when you think about developers and also offer the company the ability to increase price over time. All those things good for investors. 
Yeah, I think one of the big questions, though, is if this really makes Bing more competitive with the Google search engine. I, right now, I'm in the maybe camp because I think it would be enormously difficult to break the stickiness factor. But in preparing for this segment, I made a couple of search of the same searches on Google and Bing, and it's essentially. If, if you're looking for where something is, Google, I think, still has an advantage. If you're looking for how to do something, right now, Bing might have some some advantages because it can add that context with, with the chat GPT. Yeah, you know, we'll talk about the Google antitrust case maybe a little bit later. That certainly suggests, uh, when you're getting sued for antitrust, it certainly says that going after that market is challenging for new competitors. I think, for me as an investor, more excited about that the enterprise facing offerings here for, for Microsoft AI than the consumer facing areas. But, you know, never say never when it comes to these kind of new technology innovations, what they can do when it comes to shaking up the current competitive landscape. Well, the real thing investors are excited about at Microsoft is the cloud, which produced about $32 billion in revenue. This includes Azure and GitHub, as you mentioned. Uh, Nick, I really don't have anything smart to say about this, other than it seems like really big companies like using Microsoft Cloud platforms. But anything stand out to you about, uh, about the cloud performance here? Well, the thing that's really jumping out to the market this morning is that it appears Microsoft is taking share in the cloud market. The intelligent cloud business as a whole grew 19% in the quarter, and Azure itself grew 28% in constant currency, which was an acceleration from the previous quarter. Management expects the company to maintain that same level of growth, 26 to 27% growth for the remainder of the year, with increasing contributions from AI. AI contributed 3% to Azure growth in the quarter versus 2% expected. Think about those big investments Microsoft has made in OpenAI. That's really leading to increased spending um, at the cloud business. Those numbers are great, but really even better is when you put it in context with competitors. We'll talk about Google a little bit later. They reported uh, their cloud business grew only 22% off a smaller base than Microsoft's cloud business. Really suggests Microsoft is taking share in the cloud market. And if you think about the nature of this business, companies have to spend a lot of money, manpower, resources in order to, to move over to the cloud. And once that happens, it tends to be pretty sticky. So the share that Microsoft is taking today uh, likely to still be there, you know, three five years down the line. One thing we haven't discussed that Nadella made a quick note of at the end. I think this was a great mic drop. Was the Microsoft or the the Activision deal? Um, that deal is is done, and Microsoft now has thirteen franchises worth a billion dollars or more. Their library includes Call of Duty, Candy Crush, Gears of War, World of Warcraft. I'm not a big video game guy, Nick, but like even even I know that those are huge. I want to position this with Google, though. So let's say let's say you're starting Nick Siple's megacorp over there in Tennessee, and and you've got some money to work with. You can either take Microsoft's gaming division or YouTube. Which one are you taking? Uh, well, while the Microsoft gaming division certainly has lots of attractive properties um, and it's a great business, I think I would take YouTube as between. The two of them, if you think about Microsoft gaming, well positioned, but still as a distant second to Sony in console gaming. Also, if you think about the, the business structure of game development, like lots of other forms of entertainment media, you have to create the entertainment content up front, spend that, all that money up front with an uncertain payout there at the end, uh, You know, depending on how many people end up buying the, the final product. You contrast that with YouTube, which is by far the leader in its, its sub-segment of user-generated video content. There's really not a Sony to, uh, to 
to YouTube um, in their space. And also, they pay nothing up front for, for content costs by utilizing user-generated user content. You only pay folks on the back end based on how big of a hit takes place. So, a lot less risk there on the content generation side. And if you look at the two businesses, similar growth profile, Microsoft Gaming in the quarter, which is, does not include Activision today, because that, that Activision transaction closed during the quarter, uh, put up about 12% growth. You're, you're looking at a similar growth profile for YouTube. So, with a, with a better market structure and a similar growth profile, I would prefer to have YouTube. So, let's take a deeper dive into Google, though, because YouTube, unfortunately, isn't the big story for this tech giant this quarter. The business shed $100 billion in market value off what seems to be losing a little bit of ground to Microsoft in this, this cloud division, still growing that business at a 22% clip, which, like Nick, if you look at that in isolation, that's still pretty good, but we don't look at things in isolation. Is this just a cloud battle story, an expectation story? What am I missing with this? It seems to be mainly being driven by that, that gap between expectations and reality when it comes to the cloud business. I mentioned those numbers earlier from Microsoft. You compare those with the 22% growth rate from Google, suggest that Google is losing ground. They are the third place competitor behind Microsoft and Amazon, and uh, it appears that they're they're going to continue to remain in third place. But if you look outside of of that uh, that cloud business, overall results came in better than expectations. Revenue was up 11%, driven by strong performance in the ad business. The core Google ad business was up 11%. YouTube ads were up 12%, as I mentioned earlier. Operating income up 28%, driven by reduced cost. Most notably, employee headcount down over 2%. Uh, versus the prior year, driven by layoffs. Um, so, if you look at the, the top line and the earnings numbers, really beat expectations, but it's really concerned about the long-term growth trajectory for the Google Cloud business, whether they're going to be able to compete effectively with Microsoft and Amazon. So, there's a few more developments, though, outside of this cloud battle, which is that they took a little bit of a spotlight on, and, and you take a pick from this menu of, of what Google talked about. So, Waymo has 100,000 people on its self-drive waiting list. It's partnering with Walmart for drone deliveries in Dallas. The cloud AI platform, Duet AI, is partnering with retailers, including Aritzia and Gymshark, to help, those, help them gain new insights for better and faster business results. It's also got a new Pixel smartphone that is, quote, the fastest growing smartphone brand in our top markets. There's your menu. Take, take your pick. What stands out to you? I mean, I'm excited to see what happens with Waymo. Uh, they're they're letting new new riders onto the platform in San Francisco, preparing to launch in Austin as their next market. We've been waiting for self-driving to become an actual market driving real revenue for the longest time, and maybe that that's finally getting ready uh, to take place. Other bets. Still losing, which is the segment that includes Waymo, uh, still reporting a loss of almost $1.2 billion in the quarter. At some point, you'd like to see uh, those other bets actually make money. Um, and if Waymo reaches commercialization, perhaps that's one of the areas where, where you'll see that. One of their big competitors stubbed their toe this week. Cruise lost their approval uh, from California's autonomous driving regulators uh, in order to operate their, their vehicles without a driver in the car. So, yeah, one of, one of the big potential competitors in, in self driving having a tough time while it appears Waymo is continuing to expand its offering. Um, it would be nice to see, as I said, some, some real results from, from Waymo, and that's an area I'll be watching. Are you getting in a self-driving car? Let's say you're in San Francisco. You can either get an Uber or you can get a Waymo self-driving car. Price is the same. Which one are you getting into? 
whichever one gets there uh, picks me up faster. I mean, if you think about the like the safety standard that a, a self-driving car company would have to have to have this thing operating on the road, um, I would argue that uh, you're going to have to meet a little bit higher safety standard than maybe your average Uber driver out there on the road. Again, uh, that's not necessarily true. Again, we just saw what happened with Cruise in California. You can look up the incident there. Um, I think I, I would, I would, I would be willing to ride in the self-driving car, but um, you know, I, I understand why other people might feel differently. Oh yeah, I mean, you can show me the data, but it still gives me a little bit of the spooks. I want to try it though. Anyway, there is a cloud hanging over these clouds, Nick, and that is the antitrust suit hanging over Alphabet. The Justice Department says that Google illegally crushed competition by paying companies like Apple to make its search engine the default, making it tough for consumers to switch. Even though you can, you're probably not going to do it. Google says these deals weren't exclusive, and users could always change to their settings. Do you think this argument is enough to break up an alleged monopoly? Well, that's for the courts to decide. We'll see how it plays out. I will hold judgment on whether or not we've got monopolization here, but I think it is worth noting for the for the you know less legal savvy folks out here that having a monopoly isn't illegal. It's the practice of monopolization that is. And to prove monopolization, you really have to prove two elements: one, the presence of monopoly power in your relevant market, and then two, that you have to have the willful acquisition or maintenance of that power, as distinguished from growth based on having a superior product, business acumen, or a historical accident, right? Think about your natural monopoly. You can say pretty definitively that the market power, monopoly power element is there. Google has well over 70% market share, which is what many courts have looked at as kind of your prima facie evidence of market power. However, the second element, a lot harder to prove. Courts are alleging that some of these default agreements, particularly with Apple, are anti-competitive. But you can make an argument that there are legitimate business reasons why Apple might choose uh, might choose Google and why Google might seek these agreements that are Outside of anti-competitive behavior, it may come down to what prosecutors find in discovery that goes to Google's intent behind reaching those agreements. But even if, um, so you mentioned breaking up the, the monopoly, even if prosecutors win here, one question I have is, you know, how do you remedy this? Right, you can you could pay some damages out to to your bangs of the world and things like that. But this is a fundamental business service that I don't know how you divide it. This is not an AT&T company where you can divide the Northeast and the Northwest from one another. It's really kind of a, an individualized service. So, I'm, I'm not sure how you could break it up to improve the market structure. You could say that maybe this calls for more regulation in the market, but that would entrench the monopoly even deeper. I, I'm not sure the, the remedy that the court could create to, to change the way the market is, is structured today. But that's not for me to decide. That's for those people in, in DC to figure out. Uh, certainly going to be an interesting case. One trillion dollar company paying money to another trillion dollar company. Sounds like fun. Anyway, glad you don't have to decide this case, but you got to focus on your move. I'll let you get back to it. Nick Seipel, thank you for your time and your insight. Great to be here with you, as always. In September of 2022, Patagonia made the Earth its only shareholder. Deidre Willard talks with Vincent Stanley, Patagonia's Director of Philosophy, about that process, what corporate responsibility looks like today, and some surprising companies doing good work for the planet. I wanted to talk a little bit about the big news you had coming out last year, where you transferred ownership to the Patagonia Purpose Trust and the Holdfast Collective. 
now that that's been in place for a while, how how has the company adjusted? What has it meant for the company so far? And have you seen interest from other companies about about this type of structure? I think it's made surprisingly little difference within the company. Interesting. Except to make life less anxious. You know, we have the the owners of the of the company are are older, and so a transition was likely to be in the works. The younger Schwinards were going to inherit the company, and and very much they they grew up inside the company. They both work in the company, and they're. Uh, in accord with its values. So that would have been fine. We're a B Corp. That part of the transition would be fine. But I think just the symbolic power, I mean, we adopted in 2018 the uh, a new purpose statement saying we're in business to save our home planet. And I think that was transformative in which all it was interested me that the I, I watched all the team leaders and, and people on the teams go, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for our work? How do we change the way we make products? How do we change our approach to the customer? And, and I think that that was a natural transition to saying, okay, now the, uh, the only shareholder is the earth. I mean, we're, we're, we're giving the company stock to a nonprofit and all of the profits that would have gone to shareholders beyond reinvestment or beyond bonuses to employees is now going to go to environmental causes. So I think that put the structure of the company pretty much in line with its purpose, and I think that's been successful. So there hasn't been, there hasn't been, um, it hasn't affected the day to work, day work because Patagonia as a company hasn't changed much. It's this, uh, it's and the governance, it's the same board mm. uh, that we had at Patagonia is now the, the board at the Purpose Trust. So the internal changes are, are not remarkable. So one of the things Patagonia is known for is repairing garments, uh, and you have repair on your checklist for responsible company behavior. And we've, we're seeing this right to repair movement when it comes to everything from tractors to electronics. Why is the ability to repair things so important? I, I think when you talk about sustainability, uh, durability is so key that you want a product for all of the energy that goes into it, mm. all of the resources, and all of the waste generated from the creation of a product. You want that product to last as long as possible, and that reduces its negative impact o- over over the life of a product. If something lasts, you know, with, with, with fast fashion clothes that are not made very well because they're going to be thrown away after five uses versus uh, a jacket or a sweater that's going to last 10 years. You're prorating that environmental cost over time. But if it's not repairable, um, then you can't use it. So for our business, particularly for outerwear, the biggest repair item is a zipper. Uh, that will fail before the fabric does. Mm. So if you make something with a, if you make a jacket with a zipper that can't be replaced, your the durability goes way down. So re- re- repairability is key for that reason. And we didn't even have re- a repairability as a major uh, design principle until we started to really work on this idea of of the the four R's of making things uh, reusable and repairable as, as well as uh, uh, recyclable at the end of their life. So 
You have the updated book, The Future of a Responsible Company. Has your idea of what it means to be responsible changed over time? No, I, I, I do think it has become more concentrated. Mm. And I think there's a big difference between uh, doing business now and, and a decade ago. And that is that the environmental crisis um, in two ways, one in terms of climate change and also uh, the loss of biodiversity, the kind of thinning of the web of life, and also the water crisis. I mean, we're just beginning to grapple with that. New York Times ran a piece a couple of weeks ago on water withdrawals. So this is really serious. We're, we're losing uh, water in the aquifers and then a lot of rivers are becoming polluted. So what we have is um, an environmental crisis that's also creating social disruption and uncertainty. Food uh, farmers are th throwing their hands up in the air because everything they know about when to plant and when to harvest is challenged and has to change. Not necessarily related to climate change, but certainly business has been through COVID. And we were just talking about the kinds of readjustments mm -hmm. businesses made in the last couple of years. So I think the climate for business and the demands on business are very different than they were 10 years ago. And I think at this point, it's really incumbent on us as a sector in society to actually make things that are useful and that help solve the real problems that we have, both environmental and social. And at the very minimum, I think businesses have an obligation to clean up after ourselves. You know, if we're polluting in a certain way or we're generating a certain kind of waste to uh, not wait for the regulators to come after us, but to uh, change our processes so that we no longer do those things. So that, that's the big change, that the, the, the urgency of, of making business a good actor, not just a value-free, profit-producing sector of society or job-providing sector of society, that we actually have to be um, good players. Yeah, sort of building off of that, one of the things on, on your checklist was that every company needs to consider the earth as a stakeholder. So so you're seeing, it sounds to me like you're seeing some companies do that. What are some examples uh, that, that you see that are they're promising or, op or optimistic and hopeful? I think a lot of companies have responded in different ways. Walmart for the last 15 years, Walmart, I think, is the largest supplier of organic food in the country. They have done things like figure out how to feed the cow, dairy cows in order to reduce the methane produced. Mm. It, Unilever is an interesting example during Paul Pullman's administration of refusing to uh, report quarterly. And of I think they, de they determined that uh, of their 400 brands, the 40, 40 of them produced half the profits and also a lot of the innovations that would create the business of the future. Uh, Danone made its um, U.S. subsidiary a B Corp, which is one of the largest B Corps in the world. Nike has been an expert at reducing its uh, resource impacts, really making products with minimal amount of materials. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of companies, not, not all of them are all we would consider great players in all ways, but all of those are 
are, are seriously doing things to to uh, reduce their impact, their environmental impact. You've mentioned B Corp a couple of times, and uh, what do you think in general of the B Corp status for publicly traded companies? There aren't there aren't too many B Corps that have gone public. Do you expect that this is going to grow over time? I know the 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 uh, the rules for becoming a B Corp and remaining a B Corp are you know they're they're strict they're strict. And do you think that's that's a concern? Yes, but uh, what I've seen is more and more a large large companies are interested in becoming B Corps. Mm. Uh, particularly international. This was a small company movement as little as five years ago, and I, and I think that's changing. What we found, we became a, a B Corp and also a California Benefit Corporation, which is legal status. I think the the advantages for us have been the this uh, the impact assessment, which we borrowed from in the checklist on, on the future of the responsible company. That impact assessment gives us a holistic look at our practices that we really can't get anywhere else. And also, I think for companies that are trying to do the right thing, it gives, uh, uh, it gives them colleagues, it gives them people to call up on the phone and say, hey, we're grappling with this plastics problem, for instance, and what have you found? So I think it's an important movement. Yeah, and it also gives more more benchmarks, which which I think we need. Yeah, you mentioned plastics. It, that that is a huge problem that that I think so many companies are wrestling with. What is your take on some of the ways the plastics problem can can be uh, eased a little bit? I think there are going to be uh, multiple approaches to this. Uh, our biggest plastic problems comes from microfiber pollution. Mm. So the, the particularly all, all fabrics shed uh, microfibers in the, in the laundry. But uh, the problem with nylon and polyester is because they're oil-based, uh, they persist in the water. So if they get out of your washing machine and into the municipal water system and then flow into the ocean, they end up in the stomachs of seabirds and uh, animals. We all have like a credit card's worth of plastic in our bloodstream from uh, all of the plastic waste generated. We we had an interesting collaboration. We were I was talking to a group of Samsung executives and mentioned to them this problem. I said, you know, we're, you know, we're considered a, a great environmental player, but we have we have our problems too, and 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 this is one of them. And we said we can't get anybody any washing machine manufacturer to work with us. And they rose to that. And they actually developed a, a filter that filters out 98% of microfibers. So, uh, and now their competitors are also trying to uh, come up with the same kind of filter. So that's one approach. Um, we're also working with an NGO in, in Vancouver on uh, how can this... Uh, uh, how can municipal water systems also uh, work on the problem? The big, you know, the big issue probably is how do you reduce the amount of plastic yeah. that that's generated, and that just a tremendous amount of waste from 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 packaging and then from the products themselves. As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening.
We'll be back tomorrow.